Welcome to Politically Speaking, Scotland's flagship political podcast brought to you from the editorial team of the award-winning Holyrood magazine. Whether you're more interested in what politicians do to relax than what they actually do in the parliament, this is the podcast where you'll get the full skinny on politics, policy and pure nonsense. Join me, Mandy Rhodes, editor of Holyrood, along with Liam Kirkcaldy, one of my award-winning writers, along with the odd politician as we chew the political fat and spit it out onto the page of the forthcoming issue of Hollywood magazine. You know, lots of people have then questioned why you could go to a pub but you can't go to the theatre. In the Scottish Parliament, who'd be the best at doing a press-up? I don't know, which are the most athletic? Brian Whittle was an athlete. I mean, you presume he can do a few press-ups? I've been wrong about many, many things. It's a very um, strange thing in politics where if you admit you're, you're wrong, it seems or it's some kind of huge failing. It's actually, uh, I think it's perfectly acceptable to put your hand up and say, listen, I got that wrong. Because she couldn't get childcare, she was forced to, to bring one of her kids into the session and was actually rebuked for it by the comments. Okay, so first up this week, we have Good Week, Bad Week. That's a regular part of the show where we talk about the changing fortunes of political players in Scotland and beyond. Mandy, I believe you've got a suggestion this week. Oh. For the first time ever, you've come in with an idea. <laughs> That's not true, Liam, actually. Um, but there's an obvious one, isn't there? Because uh, the good week has to be for grannies who can now hug the grandwains if they're under 11 and they can catch them. Yes, and, and they want to hug them in the first place. <laughs> I don't think they... it's obligatory. It's kind of in their job description. <laughs> you have to hope they like they like their own grandkids, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is. It's a great week for them. Um Great week for under 11s in general, I suppose, because they can also go and see their friends in the park and stuff like that and actually, you know, not have to stay two metres apart yeah. from each other. And I think, to be honest, that's probably a very good week for parents for because for trying to keep children under 11 apart from each other must have been impossible. That's true, yeah. I suppose the, the concern is that you'll get adults pretending to be under 11 <laughs> so that they can uh, hug each other in the park. Well, I think there's actually a crime, probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not the way that ID normally works. Is it? Normally, you have to prove you're over 18. <laughs> Uh, moving on. <laughs> yeah, um, well, that's a good that's a good suggestion. Uh, yeah. What about bad week? Have you got anything? Got yeah, anything I think bad week. Um, it's it's theatres closing, and I can't help feel that when we talk about the well-being economy, which we're all doing nowadays, we're missing a bit of a trick here. And in Edinburgh, particularly, it's quite sad. I mean, I know at this time of the year we'd normally be getting prepared to be annoyed about the influx of visitors for the festival. But it just feels doubly sad, really. Um, you walk past theatres and they just look they look sad, completely derelict. Mm. Um, so there, there was a response to that, wasn't there? Yeah, there's a new design project being launched to wrap some of the empty buildings with a bright message of hope amid the industry's crisis, really. So the hashtag, the scene change project, it'll see theatres in the UK wrapped with pink barrier tape reading missing live theatre and I think the Lyceum in Edinburgh is going to be wrapped this week and it's, it's basically to bring joy and some colour to the venues while they're looking so dismal. Yeah so, so theatres in England can reopen but without live performances I think from uh, from the 4th of July in Scotland I guess that's a little bit further behind. Yeah I, although I have to say there was a bit of good news today in fact um, when Fiona Hislop who is the economy secretary who also has um, the arts within her brief which I think is quite important right now she announced a £10 million lifeline fund for the performing arts venues and the details of that will come out over the next couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah. So at the moment, we know that the, the money will be used to keep theatres, um, which are struggling, 
financially viable up to the end of March 2021. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of it does feel like the kind of the cultural the art sector always get hit by these sort of crises, doesn't it? Yeah. The same thing happened under austerity. And I think the, the people have found it difficult to, um, if you like, square the circle at the moment because pubs in England, uh, so I suppose you can say it's a good week for people that like pubs, um, pubs will be able to open um, both inside and outside in England. And, um, you know, lots of people have then questioned why you could go to a pub, but you can't go to the theatre. And you will also be able to go to the cinema. But I think the issue is if you're having a live performance, it's about the breathing and people, um, yeah, yeah. you know, vapour and people in the audience, etc. You could become too overcome by emotion to be able to stay safe, basically. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I can't remember the last time I went to the theatre and found the actors spitting on me, but... Um... Actually, I, I saw the... <laughs> I saw the live thing of train spotting, and it was <laughs> it was a degree of phlegm. That's true. We also used to work with Tom Freeman, who was an actor who's now with the Greens. And, yeah, he'd project. Yeah. So, the, so the pubs are going to open at six a.m. So you have to say it's probably quite a bad week for the emergency services because yeah. that isn't going to go well. And I think that's the issue. I mean, you know, the, the prime minister has been heralding this as our patriotic duty if you live in England to pick up your pint um but the whole thing is and and you know this this idea of this super saturday people are really ge- you know gearing themselves up for a heavy weekend of drinking uh, and in fact the the treasury it was slammed for a particularly insensitive tweet they had a very colorful tweet with lots of clinking of glasses um and urging britons to grab a drink and raise a glass when the pubs open and um you know, I found myself throughout this lockdown period agreeing with Piers Morgan, which has been a very strange thing. Um, but he basically was saying, you know, 65,000 people dead. I'm not sure if that's quite true, but 65,000 people dead, the economy uh, collapsing, millions facing unemployment, and the Treasury wants us all to go out on the piss and celebrate. And, you know, he's right. There's a contradiction in all of this, and, and people need to be careful about it. Yeah, so um, the Chancellor actually continued quite a left field approach to social media, initially by tweeting a picture of himself outside what appeared to be an antique. Was it a, a shop for teapots? I'm not really sure. Or a chocolate shop? Yeah, how happy he was pubs were reopening. And then the most recent one was pubs were reopening, put the kettle on. Um, which I think does raise questions about his understanding of what a pub is. Yeah, I mean, obviously, well, he doesn't drink himself, but yeah, I, I think that it's a bit of a kind of a getting down with the kids type message, isn't it? Uh, I do well, sort of know what it's like to go to a pub and enjoy myself. I would personally, I'd put him in charge of all government communications if I had my, my way. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think the um, the Treasury's message in particular, they actually took that tweet down and apologised for it because I think police, alcohol campaigners, doctors, A&E departments, they've all complained about it. I think everybody's frightened about what's going to happen, actually. Um, and in Scotland, <laughs> where our relationship with alcohol is one that you would not envy, we're only looking on thirsty, if you like, because our pubs indoors won't open for some weeks now. And outdoors, um, I think we've still got another week to go. Yeah, I suppose you might see some cross-border travel of people wanting to go to the, the pub in England. Well, particularly if the weather continues in Scotland as it has been, where it's been very, very bad. So that does bring us on to the whole issue of borders. So borders, Liam, <laughs> and whether, in fact, they exist or not, have featured pretty heavily in the news this week. Yeah, so this 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 story really, I suppose it's, 
got a few different aspects to it. One of them is the increasing tension between the Scottish and UK government over the plans for air bridges. Um, that's a, a you know a travel bridge or an air bridge between um, various countries that would be able to come to the UK. With the Scottish government obviously quite concerned about the potential for that to spread coronavirus, um, people weren't able to come to the UK without going into quarantine. It seems to have got a bit more tense as time has gone on. There were suggestions that the UK government was holding back on the announcement to try and get a four nations approach. Uh, Hamza Youssef claimed that he only had about 30 minutes to actually view the plan before they were expected to sign up to it. Um, and I suppose, yeah, there will be people who will be questioning how you can go on holiday to Spain, but you still can't really go and stay with family at the moment. It does seem like quite a strange policy in a lot of ways. I suppose it's also important to differentiate between the air bridge and the bridge to Northern Ireland um, in the sense that this one isn't totally delusional. <laughs> I think one was metaphorical, wasn't it? And then the tunnel was... Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's it. So if, if you can't have an air bridge, it's possible we could have some sort of air tunnel. Yeah. Um, I think that'd be Alistair Jack's response. Um, he, he believes that the, the, the bridge to Northern Ireland was actually a euphemism for a tunnel in the first place. Um, and then, yeah, the, the, the border story got even stranger with Boris Johnson taken to the Commons and announcing that there is no border between Scotland and England, which is obviously harder to argue when you consider that there definitely is. I think it was a bit hard for his uh, former Secretary of State for Scotland, given he represents the borders as well. There is an MP for the Penrith <laughs> and the borders. There's a place called the Scottish Borders Council. Yeah. Um, the Tories are actually in charge of that council, I think. So they'll be shocked to find out that Boris Johnson is unaware of their existence. Well, um, also, it got stranger as well, because you then had Jacob Rees-Mogg basically saying that Nicola Sturgeon was Donald Trump in disguise because she wants to build a wall or a border. So that all got a bit weird as well. Yeah, can can you think of a description that Nicola Sturgeon would find more irritating than being compared to Donald Trump? I mean, honestly, I don't think there's anything that he could have come up with that she'd have found more annoying. Uh, yeah, I know. And by um, proxy, I suppose that then makes her like um, Boris Johnson, because Boris Johnson has also now been compared to Donald Trump because he wants to, because of the huge success of his daily COVID briefings, where we've obviously all been impressed by his handling of the virus, he now wants to introduce daily TV briefings in general, which is very much a, a White House thing. Do you think he'll do push-ups? I hope he, he walks on stage topless um, and starts doing push-ups immediately in front of the nation. No, I think wrestling with a bear. Wrestling with a bear, Putin style. Yeah. Do you think Nicola Sturgeon would get involved? I would Honestly, I, I would hope not. <laughs> I, well, I interviewed her last week and I just feel I should have asked her to do a press-up. I, I don't think she would have. I've never asked a politician to do a press-up in an interview and I feel like that's one of my major shortcomings. It's well, possible I think it is as well. I don't know. I mean, maybe they would. <laughs> Who do you think could be good at a press-up? In the Scottish Parliament, who'd be the best at doing a press-up? I don't know. Which are the most athletic? Brian Whittle was an athlete. I mean, you presume he can do a few press-ups. Oh, maybe my God. He would be so competitive about it. I think just going back to the um, the idea of these daily press briefings, that Boris Johnson's basically <laughs> said he's doing them because people, that's us, we want direct engagement with government. And he cited the popularity of his daily COVID briefing. <laughs> That'll be the daily COVID briefing that has seen his popularity plummet by 40 points in the opinion polls. Yeah, I mean, for a long time, he didn't seem particularly keen on those briefings. He wasn't particularly good at them. <laughs> No, no. Um, I, mean, I suppose that also brings us to his, his big speech this, this week. Yeah, well, generally, I'm not sure it's been a good week for Boris Johnson because he wanted to be compared to Franklin Roosevelt um, and the whole New Deal 
and uh, the US president who took over the economy in very bad times, but also I think was re-elected four times. Um, and this was Johnson's great oratory. He was about to go into about um, build, build, build. Doubling down to dig deep. <laughs> that did throw me that phrase, I have to admit. Clever stuff like that. Yeah, so it's, it's sort of infrastructure projects, isn't it? Let's, I mean, that seems like the kind of gist of it, which, I mean, it does feel a bit like the Northern Powerhouse to me. It wasn't that long ago that George Osborne wanted to rejuvenate the economy by build, build, building. Shovel-ready projects. <laughs> <laughs> it does feel like we've descended into the thick of it at times. I, um, I think um, it wasn't actually the greatest day for Johnson to be echoing Roosevelt's. Uh, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself given that lockdown restrictions were reimposed in Leicester because of an, an outbreak of COVID. Yeah, I mean, how, how can there be a border around Leicester, but there isn't a border between Scotland and England? I think the, the important thing is that it's just a game of whack-a-mole. <laughs> <laughs> I think, if anything, it's shown up to the SNP's flawed strategy that Leicester now has independence from the rest of England. But <laughs> Scotland, Scotland's, well, it's been years of them trying to get another independence referendum. So. Uh, I, I think, you know, in general, though, that whole kind of the economic reality and uh, the job losses that have been created by COVID and what we now face might have something to do with the decision by SNP MSP James Dornan to reverse his decision not to stand down in the next election. Um, so he'll, he'll now have to go back in for selection? Well, potentially. That... It would depend. It would depend. Protocol in the past has been that if there was a sitting MSP, SNP members would not challenge that. I mean, it does happen. That has happened occasionally, but it's not thought of too well. But I guess because he'd already announced he was going to stand down, there will already be perhaps potential candidates eyeing that seat up. So it'll be interesting to see. And there is certainly a lot of manoeuvring going on within the SNP. Yeah. So he, he explained basically that, I mean, to paraphrase, when the situation changes, James Dornan's plans change. Um, and so thanks to the, the changes brought by COVID-19, I'm not sure if thanks is really the right word, but um, the accompanying lockdown. He says, this has brought an overwhelming amount of work, much of it new and unusual for my staff and I to deal with. And it leaves us with unfinished business with constituents, businesses and organisations I've worked closely with over the last nine years. It sounds like he basically now thinks it isn't, we need some more experienced heads in the Scottish Parliament and he thinks it maybe isn't the right time for him to leave. Yeah. I mean, I, so I spoke to him this morning, actually, and he said exactly that. That it does just feel... The experience is, is required, that he's been overwhelmed by kind of lots of new cases as well. And he feels that there's unfinished business. And, you know, I, I think I spoke to another MSP this week that was saying to me that lots of people that had thought about standing down weren't going to do that now. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if there are some that this lockdown helps make the decision that they will stand down. But, but I spoke to Neil Finlay, um, the Labour MSP, um, who is standing down, and he, I don't think he's changed his mind on this. He certainly didn't during the interview. But one of the things we talked about was that Neil had gone in to the Scottish Parliament in 2011 very much as someone who had quite a varied background, had lot, done lots and lots of jobs. And I think it's it's a shame that we start to lose that. He's certainly one of the most colourful characters in the Scottish Parliament, isn't he? He's yeah. the only MSP that I know that has uh, communist statues in his office. <laughs> I did say to him the point that we'd be making that we've just interviewed his wife for the uh, 50 at 50 magazine. 
and uh, we were really impressed that the wife of Neil Finlay managed to get through a whole interview without talking about um, Fidel Castro or socialism. She's a, she's a better media performer, you have to say. <laughs> well, you can make your mind up by listening to this. All right. Um, so, Neil Finlay, at a time when people bemoan the rise of the career politician, and that's all they've ever done, politics, you're a kind of career careerist, because you've, is there any jobs that you've not actually done? Well, um, I, oh, there's plenty of jobs I've not done, Mandy, but um, actually, I think that's a, a, that's a really, um, I think it's a positive thing. I, um, life, you're only here once, and um, you should take the opportunity to have as many experiences as you possibly can and uh, that should include in your working life and I, um, I have done many things. I started off, I wanted to be a chef, I, uh, I went to college to be a chef and love cooking. Um, but the beans, Neil. I, I, well, I good beans though, very good beans. Um, and uh, uh, the uh, experience of working in that sector was just demoralising because of the paying conditions. And I, I went on to work with my dad as a bricklayer for uh, an apprenticeship, worked there for 10 years, which um, was at times the worst job in the world and other times the best job in the world for um, various reasons. The worst job because of the winter weather and working outside, frozen, and the best job because I met some of the most intelligent, uh, funny uh, people that I've ever met in my life, many of whom did not have a formal qualification to their name, but were some of the smartest people I've ever met. Um, and then I went on, uh, went to university a bit later in life and became a housing officer and then a teacher. Uh, so I think all of that has stood me in good stead for being uh, grounded and understanding the world around about me, particularly the world of the ordinary people. So why why did you want to get into politics after all those things? Um, I didn't really. Um, it kind of just kind of happened. Um, I was always, in, well, since I was about 14, 15, the minor strike was going on and my, all around me. Thankfully, my family weren't involved. Um, my, my dad was a bricklayer, my mum was a primary school teacher. But in my village, in my community, my pals, father, my um, people around about me were all involved in that. And it... I started watching it on TV, and my brother-in-law was, um, who was going out with my sister at the time, was um, uh, starting university, and both of us were interested in what was going on politically, watching every bit of what was the twists and turns of that um, momentous occasion, momentous year, and that got me politically interested. My pal's mum was the secretary of the local Labour Party, encouraged me to come along to a meeting, and the first meeting I went to was actually in the Miners' Welfare Club, that's where the branch used to meet. But on that evening, I went to an anti-poll tax meeting that was on in the, uh, the, the function room, which was packed, and um, afterwards I sneaked into the Labour Party branch meeting, and uh, one young thrusting councillor was there to speak to us about his ideas for a Scottish Parliament, and that was uh, Jack McConnell. Um, and that was my first day, uh, that was my first in the door of uh, labour politics. That's interesting. I was uh, well. I was at uni with Jack, so oh, probably yeah. one of them. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> In fact, we had him on the podcast. What was that? Well, the interesting thing about that was I went to the meeting in the the, the big function room, the anti-poll tax meeting, which Dennis Canavan was speaking at, and there was 
you know, hundreds of people there, and I went into the Labour Party branchment, and then there was probably, I mean, there was about 25 people there for a small village that, you know, a relatively small village, it wasn't a bad turnout, but they, um, it was interesting just the two meetings that were going on at the same time on the same yeah. evening, you know. And I mean, I know this because having interviewed Tam Dale a number of times, he kept saying to me when you got elected, he said, you've got to watch, watch him. He'll be really great. Mm. Now, I've always found that relationship between you and Tam an interesting one. Uh, yes. Um, and, you know, probably we couldn't have come from more contrasting backgrounds. Actually, my mum was at school with Tam's wife, Kathleen. Uh, they, they two were friends at school and went to university together and uh, teacher training together. Um, so, um, but when I first saw him, went along to the constituency Labour Party, Tam would be up giving his parliamentary report. And it was never on anything mundane, like, you know, somebody needing their roof fixed or, you know, you know the, the grass not getting cut by the council or something like that. It was always about international intrigue or um, things like Lockerbie Bay or uh, the Falklands or the Iraq War. And it was fascinating stuff. And uh, he and I just, seemed to hit it off. Um, we got on extremely well together. He, the, the thing, I, I, a couple of things I learned from him, the, the, the main thing was, um, well, first of all, that I took into my political life was to be absolutely doggedly determined that when you know you're right about something and you've got an issue, that you just don't let it go. And it doesn't matter. He, he, he always said he didn't, he didn't care whether in the House of Commons that 649 people were railed against them. If he believed he was right, he would plough on regardless, irrespective of what the um, opposition to his viewpoint was, and he did. And, and I think that's a very admirable trait that um, if you have a belief in a principle or a, a belief that you're doing something right, then you, you've kind of got a duty to yourself to doggedly pursue that. And I certainly learned that from him. The second thing, uh, that he he did was he never spoke down to anyone. He spoke to people on the level. So the fact that I would come into the meeting and my working clothes and my boots all caked in cement, not being home for a wash because I was working on a Sunday before, prior to the meeting, did not matter a job. He would speak to me with complete respect and he would listen to my point of view, not so that he could then tell me I was wrong but to listen to my point of view, and then he would mull it over and, and, and he would come back to, at a later time saying, you know, I've in, I'm, I'm interested in your point of view, I will take forward that, or, well, I disagree with it for this reason, but it was always respectful, and it was always, uh, you got spoken to on the level, and I think that was a, a very great trait of his. Yeah. On that point about not letting go when you believe in something, are you also prepared to say, Actually, I was wrong about that. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yes, I mean, I, I, I've been wrong about many, many things. Um, and I'm quite prepared to admit when I'm wrong. I think it's a, it's a very, it's very um, strange thing in politics where if you admit you're, you're wrong, it seems as though it's some kind of huge failing. It's actually um, a very natural thing in human life that you're wrong on many occasions. And uh, uh, I think it's perfectly acceptable to put your hand up and say, listen, I got that wrong. Yeah. I mean, when I first met you, when you'd been elected in 2011, I remember you coming up to me at a party conference and saying, right, I want to go in into this place and get to know people and work collaboratively. 
and now after that all that time you're going to stand down at the next election mm -hmm. has it has it felt a bit of a failure for you uh, no um i've well first of all i've enjoyed every second well almost every second of it um uh, there's some of it i can you know i'll happily uh, leave behind but um i've enjoyed certainly enjoyed it to, to, to be anyways it's absolute cliche but to be uh, a representative of other people is a huge um, a huge privilege and honour and uh, uh, I know people have said that a million times but it, it is, it genuinely is and you've got a big responsibility to, to certainly to take forward issues that constituents raise for you and uh, one of the things I've been absolutely dogged about and I drum it into anyone who works for me is that the first job you've got to do is pursue every case that comes before us and respond to every person. I get uh, so frustrated when people come to me and say, I've been to an MSP and they never really got back to me. And you think, you know, if I write to the electricity board or if I write to the, you know, my gas company and they don't respond, I'm furious because they've not responded. I don't see how that should be any different for someone who contacts their elected representative. So my, my office is, absolutely drilled and getting back to people and I think that's just sheer courtesy and, and it's what I would expect. In terms of um, campaigning and, and, and working collaboratively, there's some times that that has worked very well and there's there's other times that it doesn't work at all. So for example, when I, worked, when I was chairing the health committee in the parliament, I said to any member who came on that they would, um, that I would ensure that their voice was heard on that committee. Everyone would have their say. I would never attempt to stop anyone because their uh, viewpoint or their political view was different from mine. I might have disagreed 100% with it, but I was determined that they would have their view. And I don't think anyone who um, served on the committee when I was there would, would say otherwise, that I did not allow people. I would never cut people off uh, politically. And I, I just would never do that. Obviously... Yeah, sorry. sorry, Neil. I was just going to say, and actually on that collaboration, I mean, one of the things that I'll obviously remember you hugely for is the work that you've done around the Vaginal Mesh campaign. And oh. that, that was a good example of women actually being ignored. And then three, three men across three very different parties came together to work for them. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it, it kind of just... It kind of happened. It wasn't a plan. It was, you know, there was various reasons for that. I mean, initially I took up the campaign, and we got involved. The women had been, came forward and asked for meet meet me as I had just been appointed the shadow health secretary, and we met with them. And uh, you know, um, talking about uh, women's reproductive systems is not what my my general conversation. And being a you know a kind of Six foot four, ex bricklayer, working class guy. It's the kind of thing that the conversation I would have run a mile from uh, previously. But we sat down in the room, and you know, twelve women and myself and Tommy who worked. We all looked at each other a bit sheepishly, and I said, "Look, look, look ladies, this is uh, far more embarrassing for me than it is for you. We're, it's not the same kind of thing we talk about. So let's just put that aside and let's go on with it." And it was like um, it was like pricking a balloon that we all just kind of sighed relief and we go on and we go on like a house on fire eh, after that and the women have been just absolutely fantastic i mean hugely inspirational people and just um again that dogged determination that they have to see some level of justice 
and you know over over the piece it took a long time i have to say a long time of campaigning to get anyone to listen to us because the media ran a mile from it they did not want i mean one uh, journalist in the parliamentary press back said to me look and this is this is exactly the words he said to me he said look we didn't talk about women's fannies that was what he said to me and and i thought yeah when i reflected on it i thought that's the reason that they are not coming to my uh, press conferences to the they're not running the story in the media when i'm giving them press releases or anything like that because it was just something they did not want to discuss so it took us a long time to force it onto the agenda um, and by that time, um, Jackson Carlo, one of the main movers, Elaine Holmes, and the campaign is one of Jackson's constituents, and she had been badgering him to get involved, and he did. And then Alec Neal was the cabinet secretary who we were given stick for in the, in the first instance. When he uh, moved on, he then um, obviously had more freedom, if you like, to, to help, and uh, he came on board as well. But it was a long haul. It was a long yeah. haul. And, and many people still run from the uh, issue. Is, is that one of the things that you're going to be most proud of when you leave? Um, it is. I mean, I think, um, yes, yes, it is. Um, but still huge frustration. So we've achieved a lot. I mean, we got the government to ban uh, or, or suspend MESH, which was a, a big move. We... Um, we Recently, um, I put forward the proposal for a, a mesh fund, which has just actually opened up for applications today. Um, they, there's been compensation paid to the women, not anywhere near the compensation I think they should have got, but there's been compensation paid. All of these things I don't think would have happened if we not hadn't run the campaign like we have. But that's also tinged with a huge level of sadness and frustration at the lack of progress in getting proper healthcare uh, and seeing any level of um, justice in the longer term for all of these women. And kind of moving on a bit, I suppose, in terms of just well, picking up your theme of uh, sadness and frustration, the Labour Party in Scotland. Mm. So do you, do you sometimes feel like the last socialist standing? Yeah, no, 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 not at all. Um, there's uh, many um, people in the Labour Party um, who are very much in our uh, politics are, are aligned with, with my politics. And uh, we saw that during the whole um, Corbyn era where we had people joining uh, the Labour Party in large numbers because of that, um, uh, that type of politics. And I'm very proud and I'll never, never move from that, uh, that viewpoint. Um, so certainly not the last uh, socialist standing, not at all. Um, you know, um, we don't call it the struggle for nothing. It's a, you know, the the, the class struggles are something that you have to um, keep keep at, and there'll be setbacks along the way, and then there'll be advances, and you know, it, it goes on, and um, you know, either, you're either a believer or you're not. But when you look, you know, you've had. Since you got elected in 2011, there's been 10 leaders or acting leaders of the Labour Party. I mean, you yourself tried to stand as well yeah, to be a leader. Yeah. What What is the future for the Labour Party in Scotland? What has gone wrong? We've, we've got about two minutes. Oh, I've got two minutes. Jeez, oh, we've not even talked about lockdown or anything. Um, the Labour Party in Scotland, I, I mean, I think um, we have 
um, got it wrong on some major, major issues, and particularly the constitutional question in Scotland. I think the, the, you know, the whole better together uh, thing was a shambles that we should never have been involved in. Um, but prior to that, there was, um, you know, there was a whole range of issues. I think the lack of um, uh, transformative change when the parliament came in was a was a very significant thing. And and if we go back, the 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 fallout from the Iraq War, I think, was probably the biggest um, the biggest issue that um, impacted on the, the the Labour Party's credibility. Not maybe not the issue itself. People don't still talk about Iraq in the same terms as they did before. But as a as an issue for starting to undermine the sort of moral purpose of the Labour Party, and um, you know, I, I think it was hugely damaging. But are the voters in Scotland as far left as perhaps you think they might be? No, no, they're not at all. No, I don't, I don't think they are. Um, I, I don't think they are. When we see the, um, the what they vote for in big numbers at the moment is effectively, um, I'd say it's, it's largely new labour with a, a bit of talent on it. Um, you know, that's, that's you know, it's... Uh, it's adherence to you know market economics. It's a, a bit of social um, social reform and you know liberalism in terms of social policy, um, but in terms of economics and uh, you know the adherence to market capitalism, then there's not really yeah, that great difference from what the Blair agenda was. But does that make the voters wrong, Neil, or the <laughs> politics wrong? Well, you know. <laughs> You can look at it in many ways, and um, you've either got to believe, you know, if we all just said, well, whatever the voters say is right, then there would be no reason to be allied to a political philosophy. You would just be, as Tony Benn used to famously point out, a weather vane that blows in the wind. And you do need people who he called signposts who believe in something and saying, well, this is the direction we should be going in and um, and you stick to that. And uh, if that makes me wrong in other people's eyes, well, so be it. Right. Well, we will move on, I suppose. I mean, I, I suppose the only other thing is that if, as we look to 2021 and the election, and you've clearly made that decision to stand down and not stand for election again, I mean, that could be a career move given the opinion polls. Do you think Labour are going to do badly? Well, you, can, you can't be a socialist and a pessimist, then, Mandy. You've, uh, socialism and uh, pessimism are two completely uh, different. Uh, <laughs> they should not be going together, in my opinion. You can be so, a realist, though. Well, yes, I um, ain't looking too clever for us at the moment, but um, you know, let's, time, will tell. time will tell. Do you think they need to change their position on independence? Uh, I, I absolutely do. I think we need to change. We need to change our position. Actually, it's interesting. The paper that was agreed um, at the Scottish Executive a few weeks ago um, was actually a better paper than what the spin was after it. And because the spin was that it was a hardline unionist position, and actually um, uh, that wasn't what the paper produced. Uh, paper that was passed then said, but I think um, what Labour should be saying is the, the Scottish people have a right to self-determination. That's a democratic principle I've always believed in. Uh, I believe that um, should there be a further referendum, uh, if people want that, then so be it. But Labour should take part in that process positively uh, and put forward a positive agenda 
based, in my opinion, on the devolution of all powers to the Scottish Parliament unless there's an overwhelming reason not to devolve, and that that should be a third option on the ballot paper. If you had a choice just now between a Boris Johnson union and a Nicola Sturgeon independence, which would you go for? Well, you know, it's an easy question to ask and it's an easy question for me to dodge. Um, <laughs> I just, well, it is, but you know, when we reduce things to that, then I don't think it's particularly helpful. I think, there's, I think there is an alternative that, you know, if you think of this right, here's some examples. Drugs policy. Scotland is a disaster in terms of drug deaths. It's the worst in the Western world. And we have people, there's carnage on our streets because of drugs policy. Why on earth would we not devolve drugs policy to Scotland to try and resolve the drugs crisis on our streets? Now, we could do so much more with the powers that we've got in terms of drugs, but Let's take that out of the equation and say, right, devolve all drugs policy, then hold the Scottish government to account, because at the moment it's easy for them to um, wriggle away from their accountability by saying, well, we don't have all the powers. But if you look at other issues, such as, let's say, uh, the, the, the border control or border agency, why on a small island nation do we need to have two border agencies? Uh, to me, that doesn't make any sense. We can argue about the policy around the border and whatever, and migration and all that, but it doesn't make any sense. Similarly, I would not devolve corporation tax because I think we'd end up in a race to the bottom. So you can work through the powers and say, yep, leave that at UK level. No, devolve that, devolve that. And I think the principle I, I adhere to is you devolve all powers in, unless there's an overwhelming reason not to. And for some issues, there is an overwhelming reason not to. And you think the fear around that, though, if you're a unionist, is that you're worried that the devolution, the further devolution of powers just ultimately leads to independence? Um, well, you know, I'd never decline, describe myself as a unionist, um, never. Um, but, uh, I mean, I suppose that's, um, you know, you would, you would have to ask them that, what their fears are. Just Shouldn't talking fear about... Democracy. Shouldn't fear democracy. Shouldn't fear I suppose that leads us kind of neatly into where we are right now. So we're yeah. dealing with a pandemic. We've yeah. um, basically followed the same route as the UK government. Um, do you think that was the right thing? Yeah, I find the whole um, way in which this is um, being conducted and in the, in the, in the way that it's perceived in the public arena absolutely extraordinary. I mean, the, there wasn't a cigarette paper between the strategy of the Scottish government and the UK government up until a few weeks ago when lockdown started easing. That's the only difference there's been. I mean, if you look at the substance, there has hardly been a bit of difference. They both were going for herd immunity. They both dismissed the WHO advice on testing. Um, the you know the tinkering about with bits and you know small bits and pieces of the uh, the, the policy um, minor changes, but largely they were in lockstep as they called it, and there was no deviation from that up until recently. And yet Boris Johnson is um, the devil for uh, the number of deaths for the policy pursued. And Nicola Sturgeon is deemed as being the heroic leader. It's extraordinary. It's absolutely extraordinary. And that, you know, clearly that is down to the ability of Nicola Sturgeon to stand up there every day and speak confidently and coherently, as opposed to Boris Johnson standing up and blithering 
guff. Um, but pursuing exactly the same policy. I mean, the thing is about politics is is the communication too, though, Neil. Yeah. And she clearly yeah. has more emotional intelligence than Boris Johnson. Yes, without, oh, without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, she, presentationally, um, without a shadow of a very skilled politician. I mean, it's, you know, if it's the only thing you've done in your life, over time you should be good at it. Um, you know, and, uh, and without doubt, Nicola Sturgeon's an extremely skilled politician. Um, it has been very frustrating for me because uh, at the beginning there was this um, this you know view that we, we we should all hold hands together. This was a national crisis, and you know we shouldn't have opposition. We should all be holding hands and and beat this you know this virus and all that is there. And I actually I would argue the contrary is the case that it's at times like this that you need opposition to be scrutinising what the government's been doing, and from the outset. I set out to do that because I could see what was going on. Some of the policy stuff they were doing was disastrous. The, the failure to follow on testing, the WHO advice on testing, was catastrophically awful. And when we hear people like Jason Leach and others, they were 100% going down that route. And I, I personally don't think it was until we got then people like Debbie Schreider and others involved that we started to see some sanity coming to the, um, the policy regime. I mean, you've obviously been critical of some of the things that Jason Leach has said, for instance, his advice about attending large events and the face masks and the whole care home um, scandal. But don't you also accept that this was a new virus and that everybody was learning? I do, but um, it's very interesting that Throughout my life, I've came across people who stand up and confident, very confidently um, proclaim things to be the absolute gospel. And people go, oh, geez, that guy sounds convincing. He sounds really good, actually. Yeah, it must be right. And actually, for about, you know, the first month or so, almost everything that was being called was wrong. You know... It's okay to go ahead with the Celtic Rangers match um, until the football authorities called off. It's okay to go and see your your ma on Mother's Day. Um, it's so no, we don't want uh, we don't want to close schools. There's no need to close schools. Herd immunity, yeah, that's what we're going for. Face masks, don't bother with face masks. And and it goes on and on and on. Testing, testing was another one. Um, so I think there was, I think there was real major major errors made at the beginning that many of them were avoidable and none more so than the utter catastrophe of discharging all those older people from care homes eh, from hospital into care homes untested and something that's very close to my heart as my mum was had just been moved into a care home at that time it did feel like people in care homes were sitting ducks didn't it and i think um I think it's the big scandal of this is the uh, treatment of our elderly. Um, I've just got parliamentary answers back today on some of this, and uh, and I've also been pursuing FOIs on the whole do not resuscitate um, saga uh, and trying to get information out of health boards, out of government, is almost impossible at that at this stage through various routes. Um, I think it is the big crisis. And the bigger issue, Mandy, the bigger issue in this that I, I, I think we will have to come back to is that prior to 
the uh, priority of the discharge of all those people. We had record delayed discharge in the NHS. Then suddenly overnight, all of these hospital places, all these care home places or home care places were found suddenly overnight. And did we build all these new homes on care home, all these new bedrooms on care homes overnight? Of course we didn't. Did we employ thousands of new carers overnight? Of course we didn't. I'll tell you what the difference was. Money. Money was made available and that allowed the care home places to be purchased and all of those older people to be put in them. So what happened in the previous 20 years when delayed discharge has been a massive issue for Scotland? The reason all of these people were stuck in hospital for up to and over a year. Why was that? Because of money. Money. But on that, Neil, I mean, you can't, it feels like it. it's not rocket science to think these delayed discharges were then put into care homes and then we've had all these deaths. You don't surely for one minute believe that anybody wanted all these old people just to die. Of course not. Of course not. Do you think it was just lack of joined up thinking then? At some point, somebody must have said, this looks, wait a minute, this looks a bit dodgy. We've got a virus that's absolutely running rife. We're not testing hospital staff. Uh, regularly, my wife's uh, my wife works in the hospital. My daughter works in the hospital. Neither of them have been tested. Neither have been tested uh, during the pandemic through their work. Um, and yet, we've got all these older people who, very obviously, would be the most high risk of anyone. And we're going to put them straight into care homes. And you know. I don't. I, I mean, I'm no clinician, but it doesn't sound like rocket science to me to put the, I mean, put, put the two together. Do you feel that all of this will come out, and do you think that you will get the chance to make the kind of points you want to make, given that we're now, you know, we'll go back in August into the Parliament, and then you'll be leaving in March? And I don't. Uh, I, I I fear it won't come out. I really do fear it won't come out. Um, uh, trying to trying to get information. This is this is the bit that frustrates the life out of me. Is that tr- the government talks? Nicola Sturgeon spoke about. Um, we want an adult conversation. We want to be open and transparent. I have to say, in my experience, nothing could be further from the truth. Every bit of information that is coming forward has to be dragged out of the government. And I am getting um, refusals for FOI, parliamentary answers. The currency of parliamentary answers at the moment is junk. It's like a junk currency. Um, So I fear that we won't uh, get the full story. What will you do with all of this that you have in your head and you want to create a better world, your clear desire to campaign and clear desire to get change? What will you do with all of that when you leave? I hope to, I mean, it's, it's a bit of the Tony Benn, you know, leaving uh, Parliament to be more involved in politics. I hope but there's some of that. Um, it's probably, I, I, if you'd asked me a few months ago, I was really quite um, excited at the prospect of um, not knowing what I was going to do. Um, that quite excitement, you know, nothing fixed, nothing uh, set down. Um, now, with the jobs market, I'm a bit more, oh, well, hmm. <laughs> um, there's not exactly going to be floods of jobs. But um, I do, I'm interested in how uh, to continue working with um, campaigners and how, we, I, I think that's where I've got something to offer. 
um, and um, over the next, well, over the summer, I'll be looking at how we might, how I might be able to pursue that. I mean, I think um, this episode that we've all lived through and the lockdown and everything, it's made everybody reassess what they are and what their priorities are. But in a way, you and Fiona, your wife, had done that, hadn't you? Because she'd been pretty ill. Hi, um, yes. Um, we, we, you know, she was she had breast cancer a few years back, and uh, it does again. I mean, it's, it's really the cliches this interview. I'm sorry, Mandy, but uh, it, it does kind of slap you in the face and make you sort of reappraise your life a bit. Um, and and kind of, it did make me realise, even though I was not the the patient, if you like, that you are only here once. Um, and that, to be honest, that was part of my reason for um, saying that I would be finished. Not not because of her illness or not because of her saying, look, you know, it's time you gave that up. Absolutely not at all. She could not, her and my daughter could not be more supportive. But me realising that, you know, I, I was 50 uh, last year, my, probably my midlife crisis. Um, but um, realising that actually my dad passed away when he was 64, that would, you know, if, if, if I was the same, that would only be 14 years away. Jeez, oh, there's a whole big world to see out there in 14 years rather than be um, kind of stuck in endless meetings, some of which uh, are crushingly tedious, others which are extremely interesting and, and you know, stimulating. But um, there's a whole world out there. And talking about being 50, Fiona was obviously one of our 50 women at 50. And then one of the things that impressed us during the interview, I was saying to you earlier on that we managed to do an interview with the wife of Neil Finlay and she didn't mention politics or Fidel Castro once. And, well, she's going to re-education camp, I have to say, because the no mention of Fidel in, in a, in a, a half-hour interview is just unacceptable. So uh, that will be, it'll be a correction facility visit for her, I have to say. Okay, and now we have the final part of the show. That is what is meant to be the rant of the week. We actually talked to our producer, Stephen, about this, and he said it isn't so much a rant as Mandy just talking about whatever she wants to talk about. Um, I don't know if that's how we want to advertise it as such. Yeah, get this that man the... P45. Yeah, a bold, a bold move. Um, <laughs> so this is a part of the show where Mandy normally runs through something that's been bugging her, an issue, something that uh, an old man in a pub would trap you with and demand that politics. Uh, politicians try and fix. Mandy, I don't, so it's not a rant this week, is it? Not really. It's less of a rant than a bit of amusing, I suppose, around the announcement that Cassidy Blackman, the MP, is standing down as the deputy leader of the Westminster Group of SNP MPs, um, citing mental health issues as a result of lockdown, juggling family, etc. And I suppose, you know, I feel sad about that. Um, basically, another woman saying that the pressures of political life don't particularly fit well with being a parent. Lots of people have praised Kirsty for referring to her mental health as an issue and for being open. And of course, that's to be celebrated. But I do worry that lots of people have the pressures of work, family and travel, and they can't simply stand back from some of those responsibilities. So while it's a good thing for me that people talk more openly about mental ill health, I'd like to see more positive examples of how we actually support people juggle all the things that they would actually like to do um, and that make them happy. And I do feel it's women that end up standing back. So women find it hard enough to get into politics, to get on in politics, to survive in politics. And I would hate the message to be, it's simply too hard. 
Yeah. And so, so she has obviously a, a constituency that's particularly far from the commons. And it, it feels to me that this is another one where a degree of remote working might actually be able to help. You know, we saw Gail Ross obviously announced her plans to step down and it was largely because the Scottish Parliament wouldn't work for someone that has a child, someone that wants to be able to steer family. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the, the bottom line is in the structure that we have just now, Westminster is in London. So... If you have a constituency in Scotland, you are travelling to it. And I suppose there's an element for me where I got slightly frustrated with particularly the SNP MPs that would moan a lot about the fact that they were in London, that they were in Westminster when it's an incredibly privileged job. And I'm sure absolutely Kirsty understands the privilege of being an elected member. But I agree with you. I think we should be looking and lockdown should have helped us look at how you could work more remotely in Parliament. Yeah, because obviously Kirsty Blackman's actually been very vocal about this. It was it was her that brought um, one of her yeah. kids into a committee session in the Commons. Um, she normally leaves her two young children um, with her one, with one of her parents when she travels to the Commons, but because she couldn't get childcare, she was forced to to bring one of her kids into the session and was actually rebuked for it by the Commons. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I think there's. A whole load of issues in this. So part of me is it shouldn't be about it shouldn't be any harder for women than it is for men to do all these things. Um, Gail Ross has shown us that you can still be in the Scottish Parliament, have a constituency in Scotland and still find it very difficult. And I think that highlighted lots of things. Um, there is also lots of manoeuvring going on at the moment about MPs that may want to stand for the Holyrood election um, in 2021. And I, I guess I wouldn't be particularly surprised if we saw Kirsty Blackman announcing that she may want to stand for the Holyrood election. So do you think that will be a factor in the people that choose to run for the position now? I mean, there's, I think there's been a few people that have sort of suggested they might go for it. Yeah. And the, I mean, the party had... Um, a meeting a week or so ago the, uh, where it talked about what the rules would be around that. And, uh, you know, the, there was quite clearly manoeuvring going on to not allow MPs to stand or put their name forward for, for um, selection for a seat while still remaining an MP. However, those plans didn't, nothing came of that. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how many of the MPs feel that they might be even entitled to a seat at Holyrood, which, you know, isn't entirely fair when there's a lot of talent out there of other people that may want to stand. No, it's quite a funny one, isn't it? Because a lot of the time in the past, there was a feeling that Scottish Labour sent its big names to Westminster and suffered for it. Yeah. That, you know, you had, you had some of their more maybe effective politicians or maybe better speakers, at least, who were going to stand in the Commons and they saw the Scottish Parliament almost as a demotion. I don't know if that's fair, but that was the perception. Oh, well, Tony Blair called it, I think, a parish council, didn't he? Um, so I think, you know, that's been a very different dynamic because for the SNP MPs, Holyrood is the seat of power and it's where they've been in government. So if they want to be making that kind of influence, they want to be here. And is that something that you would like politicians to address? <laughs> I don't really know what. <laughs> well, I, I think certainly politicians need to look at, you know, if, if an MP does stand for Holyrood and gets elected, it then forces obviously a by-election, which costs a lot of money and people have to get involved in that. I think there are questions certainly to be asked.
So they say a week is a long time in politics, and you've just heard a fraction of that condensed into today's Politically Speaking podcast. I hope we've enlightened and entertained, and the next time you hear someone say they're not interested in politics, remember you know a podcast that can help them with that. If you enjoyed this episode of Politically Speaking from Hollywood Magazine and the chat between Liam and I, remember to subscribe and leave a review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever you listen to podcasts. Also remember to check out our fortnightly release of Hollywood Magazine available in print or online at hollywood.com. Bye for now.